0: We have absolutely no idea the privilege it is to hold on to this in our hands. There are over 6,800 languages in the world and only 457 have a full translation of the Bible. Only just a little over 1,200 have a full translation of the New Testament and over 2,000 of those languages have Nothing. Like we have no idea what a privilege it is to have this and hold on to it and own one. I want to introduce to you uh, Svetlana. Svetlana, you go ahead and come up here. Um, I met Svetlana last week after overflow. Uh, some of y'all may actually recognize her. She, she and her husband, uh, they, they own and they, they run the Yogurt Fusion right off the square. And, and last week after overflow, we were standing over here and... and uh, we were we were talking and you know a lot of people uh, a lot of people when they they bring you know we we have a lot of students who who bring people who who are not believers and I know tonight we have people who are not who would not call themselves christians and I, that's awesome so i mean svetlana I just met and and uh, i had no idea i mean nobody had said you know she's she's a christian but as we're talking it was so obvious and so i said okay it's obvious you're a believer now let me back up she she svetlana is from russia uh, I'm gonna let her talk in a second. Uh, she's, she's from Russia. She's been here for 10 years. And, um, and so we're talking and, and I said, it's, it's so obvious that you're a believer. And so uh, as I said that, she began to share her story. And, and I guess what I would love is, is if you would share, just uh, like you shared with me, how, how did you come to know Christ?
1: I would love to. Thank you, Austin, for inviting me. Thank you so much, guys. It's just, I'm really humbled to be here. I'm from Russia, and uh, interestingly, I grew up in a country, I was born in a country that doesn't exist anymore, Soviet Union. And um, it's very interesting, now it's Russia. And for, in those times, it was communistic times, uh, Soviet Union, it was not only economic drought, but it also was a huge spiritual drought for people. Nobody talked about God, there were no Bible studies, our family didn't go to church. Uh, speaking about God or experiences that you have inside was really a taboo. It's being weird. It's outside of the social norm completely. And um, But as a seven or eight-year-old child, I had questions. And some, one day, somebody passed on to me a pamphlet. It was a photocopied, black and white pamphlet, uh, very thin. I brought it home, started reading. And in America, they call them tracks, so you may relate to this word. Uh, So I started reading to it, and it was just retelling of Jesus' story. He was born of Virgin Mary, and how out of love for people, he created so many great miracles, and how he went to the cross and died um, for people who just spat on him and um, did such um, things that, How could it be? That was my question in my heart. And as a seven or eight year old child, I thought if there is true love, if there is truth, it is this, the worthy Jesus dying for people and still asking for forgiveness. And at the end of that pamphlet, at the end of that track, there was a prayer. And it said, if you want to receive Jesus into your heart, you need to uh, pray this prayer out loud to confess with your mouth and I remember I went to the bathroom in our Russian condo and I locked myself there to have a private quiet moment and uh, literally it was uh, four feet by four feet and I remember I just knelt down just to be really real with you how it was there was a toilet right here and I knelt down is it okay that I'm real with you and sharing it how it really was it was just me, that pamphlet, and uh, there was that sinner's prayer, and I was, my heart was filled with anticipation of something, and I knelt down, and I said in Russian, the the And as a seven-year-old child, I remember, just with the eyes of my heart, I could see the ocean of light opening up, just up up above me and somebody reached down and they had a feeling like they embraced my heart and immediately I felt the sense of belongingness like I belong to this family of God now I will never be alone ever again and um, from that moment I felt really new and I wanted to continue this relationship but I didn't know how I didn't any resources i didn't have anybody to talk to i didn't really have anybody i knew of who prayed for me no church to go to it was just me and this pamphlet so all i knew was to do is i memorized the sinner's prayer and i also somehow knew the lord's prayer and um, at night before going to bed i would start sharing those prayers and after a few days i felt it wasn't uh, talking to the ceiling anymore i felt the dialogue and just God's peace and wisdom coming over me and for many years I felt I had such a feeling I was as if I was in the school of Holy Spirit it was just him guiding me and I did not have a Bible to read or any other resources and he was kind of teaching and leading me he was my backbone in those hard times that we lived in and my source and he was my everything really my my life
0: so, so you, you became a Christian during the Soviet Union where that is not something that was allowed, it was not legal, uh, no Christian community, and you said something, obviously, what we're talking about tonight sticks out, no Bible. Uh, how long did you go uh, from the time you gave your life to Christ to receiving your first Bible and having your first Bible to hold in your hands?
1: About four or five years.
0: So, so you became a Christian Soviet Union collapsed in 91 91 and and then how did you come across your first Bible
1: I remember sitting in a very crowded Russian bus um, and it was so cold the windows were frozen covered with frost you cannot see through them it was so crowded as if you can not have a space there or a place for Apple to fall. And I was kind of sitting there, actually bended a little bit because somebody was leaning here over me. <laughs> and uh, at one of the bus stops, I perceived, I noticed there was a motion at the head of the bus and some people walked in and started passing out some books. And I could realize, I was so excited, I could understand those were missionaries giving away bibles to people there and i was so excited but at the same time anxious i ho- hoped they would have enough copies for me because it was a very crowded bus and i hoped that they find find the way through people to get to the middle of the bus where i was seated and i did receive that precious copy of bible and um, it was kind of a king james version with a uh, Uh, New Testament and Psalms there. I brought it home. I started reading it. My heart just immediately connected to it because that's what I already perceived in my spirit, all the truth. I started just... It was my food. (laughs) It was my, really, my everything. And today, um, since then, I would put this little Bible underneath my pillow when I go to bed or if I travel to some trips, I will take it with me. It was my treasure. If I were to have number one priority to take with me somewhere I go, it would be that book. I would not depart from it. Even when I became older and go to the university in Russia, I would take it sometimes with me as well in my bag. And when I came to America 10 years ago, of course, I brought it with me as well. And I have it. And I brought it today for you all to show my Bible that I received. And it's all wrinkled up. And it's very old. (laughs) And, uh, It's all in Russian. This is the first Bible, and really the only Bible and the only Christian resource I had um, for a very, very long time before coming to America. No Bible studies, no devotionals, no uh, audio tapes to listen to. It was this book that I treasured, and Holy Spirit that was so faithful to continue to guide me, and he really made away in the desert for me. When I look back at my, what God did for me, I'm so thankful and humbled. It's a miracle. There, there is no rivers in the desert. And he was a way for me and for you, for us as Christians, when there is no way in that wasteland that he just reached down with his mighty hand and just touched me. And I'm so humbled for that and this book will never will always be in my heart to treasure. <laughs> it's an incredible so, story. Yeah. <laughs> Y'all, thank you Y'all
0: give her hand. Thank you so much.
1: Thank
0: you. We have no idea how privileged we are to hold what we hold in our hands. Um, you know, the Soviet Union collapsed in, in 91, and so with that, uh, the door opened for people to start bringing Bibles into the country, uh, Russia and some of the other Eastern European countries and some of the other countries that were part of the Soviet Union. But, but still today, there's over 40 countries where it's illegal to distribute or even have a Bible or other Christian literature. And, and beyond that, there's over 50 countries where if it's not illegal, then it's, it's, it's dangerous to have that because of just the local hostility that is there. We're so privileged to have what we have. i I remember. Um, I remember when I was eight years old. My, my dad, which by the way, my parents are here tonight. Uh, my dad in, in the blue shirt here. My, y'all, y'all wave. Okay. Now I'm about to talk about my dad. Uh, my my mom. I just have to say this. My poor mom. Oh my gosh. I was. Uh, I was 11.8 pounds uh, when I was born, uh, which. Some of y'all, I don't know what the average is, maybe like six or seven pounds. I was a big baby. But, but okay, so, and she uses that against me, like, and, you know, whenever I frustrate her, she's like, Austin, you were, I carried you around, you're 11.8 pounds, you know, and, you know, goes on that whole argument. But, but she used a new one on me the other day. We were talking and she said, uh, she said, I lugged you around when, when you were a baby. You were 30 pounds when you were one year old. Now, now I say that, like, some of you may not realize. I, I actually looked this up the other day. That The average three-year-old boy is 33 pounds. At one, I was 30 pounds. I don't want to know what I was when I was three years old. But they, she said, she said they called me the blob because I just didn't move. I just, <laughs> I just kind of, anyways. But but my dad, I remember when I was, I remember when I was eight years old, or I don't know, I was seven or eight. Uh, my dad took me to the old Rangers uh, baseball stadium, not the ballpark that we have now. You probably don't even remember. Some of you do, okay? And we went there for some, you know, meet the players event where you go out on the field and you meet, you know, the players. And uh, And so in that, you know, I got to meet some of the Rangers, Nolan Ryan, I think, I think Nolan Ryan was there, I don't remember, okay, Nolan, my dad's shaking his head yes, so Nolan Ryan was there, which he was like my hero, but there was another guy there, he didn't play for the Rangers, I don't know why he was there, but Roger Clemens was there, and and we took a ball to get it signed, and I got Roger Clemens to sign this baseball. Now, if you know anything about baseball, uh, Roger Clemens, if you have a ball or anything signed by him, it's gonna be worth something someday, very valuable, I mean, prior to him getting in all this trouble, automatic bid for the Hall of Fame, and probably still, an automatic bid for the Hall of Fame. Uh, but I got this ball autographed by Roger Clemens, and almost immediately when I get home, you know, I, I played Little League Baseball, I used that ball. Like, like I, my dad didn't, you know, <laughs> come on, dad, you should know. Uh, but, but like, he didn't, he didn't uh, you know, tell. I, I didn't know, I didn't realize what I had in my hands. Kind of like one of those Sandlot moments. You ever seen that movie? You know, and the kid takes his dad's ball that's been signed by, you know, as he says, some woman gave him this ball, and it was signed by some woman. They hit it over the fence, and the beast gets the ball and he's freaking out and they're like, dude, we can just get another ball. And he's like, no, like this is my dad's ball. And they're like, you know, why is it so important? He says, well, some woman gave him the balls and, and she's, she signed her name too. And he's like, yeah, they're, they're like, well, who signed it? Who gave it gave it to your dad? And he's like, some lady named Ruth. And they're like, babe, Ruth. And they run to the fence, you know, and freak out. Like, like I feel like this is, I feel like this is us. You know, we, we, have, we have God's word and and we don't realize like what we're holding in our hands and. I mean, it's not just because it's illegal in some places, and it's not just because, you know, some places they don't have the translation. I mean, I, I feel like there's still a difference because, I mean, even if the Kim Y'all, Kim, Kim Y'all tribe doesn't have a, a copy or a translation of Harry Potter or if, or if a, you know, Soviet Union was here today and it outlawed Harry Potter, which if I was running a country, I would outlaw Harry Potter because Potter it's like not cool. But, but I mean, even, even if that was the case, I know it just created some enemies there, but, but even if that was the case, even if that was the case and you know there were shared qualities with the Bible and other books like that, still, like we, we are so privileged to have God's word. We're so privileged, not just because of those things, but because it is God's word, and God's word is like nothing else that we have. I mean, when God speaks, stuff happens. Genesis 1-3, it says, God said what? Let there be light. And what happens? Bam! Like light and stars and moon and sun and universe with just a spoken word. But you fast forward to Jesus, Mark chapter 4, and he and his disciples, they're out on this boat kicking it. And, and, and I think Jesus goes to sleep for a little bit. And the wind picks up and the water gets going crazy and the disciples freak out. They're getting, they're getting I was about to say car sick, they're getting seasick. And, and they're thinking their boat's gonna collapse, they're gonna drown, so they go get Jesus, and they say, Jesus, what do we do? I mean, we're about to drown, and Jesus gets up, and, and it says that he rebuked the wind, he rebuked the waters, and he, he, he stands up, he says, quiet, I just imagine Jesus getting on the hole, you know, like Leo DiCaprio style, he says, quiet! <laughs> he says, be still! In the Bible, it says, the wind died down, and it says, immediately, the water became calm. And you fast forward just a little bit, a little bit more to the story of of Lazarus in John chapter eleven, about verse forty-three, he shows up and this guy Lazarus has been dead for like three days, buried in a tomb, and he he, he goes up to the grave and he says, "Y'all move away the stone." That'd be like us going to, I don't know, the the what's that called? Cemetery. <laughs> uh, that'd be like us going to the seminary uh, cemetery, <laughs> and 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 saying, "Hey, get this tractor out. Let's dig up this let's dig up this casket." We get to the casket. And we pull it up and we unlock it. And then Jesus says, he says, Lazarus, come out. It says he spoke to the dead person. He says, Lazarus, come out. And it says that the dead person came out. The dead man came out of the grave. When God speaks, things happen. God's word is powerful, but it's not just powerful, it is substance. Jesus in Matthew 4, 4, he says, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Now think about this. If you don't, if you don't eat for a period of time, what happens? You get hungry. If you're like me, you get really hungry. That's why we're going to Whataburger later. But if you if you don't if you if you just stop eating forever, what happens? You die. And in the same way, our spirit, our soul needs God's word. And if you stop feeding on God's word for any period of time, your soul begins to hunger. And if you stop feeding on God's word forever, altogether, then eventually it just shrivels up and dies. And I, I don't know if you've ever sat in maybe a sermon or maybe some presentation where you see, you, know, you see these very compelling pictures of people in parts of the world where they're going through a famine, and they've been days, months, years without any sort of good nutrition, and you see the pictures of these people, and they're nothing but skin and bones. I mean, picture that right now. And their bones are basically like protruding, you know, like like you see them in, in their chest, their stomach, you see their rib cage. I mean, they look half dead. And I just wonder if we had the eyes of Christ, what would we look like? What would we what do we look like? And I'll be honest, like like I fear, I fear that we look like starving people. And I, and I realize that's ironic to say, um, but, but tonight, the question that I want us to deal with is this, could it be true that we are people who are starving for God's word? Could it be that we are, we are people who are starving with a real, genuine encounter with God through his word? And again, like, I realize irony here, okay? Some of you, and even as I was studying this and writing this and thinking, I'm, I'm thinking, wait, wait, this is ironic, okay? Because here we are, like we're in a Bible study, like right now. And we're kicking off our, our communities this week. And so, I mean, later this week, you're going to be in another Bible study. And I know we have podcasts that we listen to. And some of you went to Passion 2011 and already have your tickets for Passion 2012 in Atlanta. I mean, we have all this stuff. It's like, like, like how? I mean, the question is, how? How could, how could we be starving? I want to... There's, there's a guy named Brother Andrew, his, his I don't know what his full name is. Uh, there's, a, there's a biography about him called God's Smuggler. And, and it was written while he's, st- he's still alive today. And in the 60s, 70s, 80s, during, uh, during the Soviet Union, um, when communism was just like raging in that part of the world, he would smuggle Bibles behind the Iron Curtain into these communist countries. And they wrote this biography about him. And in that biography, he, listen to what he says. He says, persecution is an enemy the church has met and mastered many times. Persecution is an enemy the church has met and mastered many times. Indifference could prove to be a far more dangerous foe. I mean, the Soviet Union was not able to stop God's work in Russia. Svetlana is a perfect example of that. And the fact that the Kimyal tribe in Indonesia doesn't or didn't have a full translation of God's word was not able to stop God's work there. But indifference, apathy, carelessness, passivity is one of the most dangerous things that the church has ever faced. And I fear that that we approach God's word with such passivity and so casual that even though it's all around us, we are still starving for it. Starving to death. And so uh, tonight, I want us to look at a story in 2 Chronicles, chapter 34, Old Testament. It's after 1 and 2 Kings before Ezra and Nehemiah. I want to look at this story that I think will bring a little bit more clarity to this. And as you turn... As you turn there, 2 Chronicles 34, let me give you a little bit of just context of what's happening. There's a king of of Judah, um, which was Israel. Israel had split into two, and one of the kingdoms was now called Judah. And the current king of Judah was a guy named Josiah. He he became king when he was eight years old. And so where we pick up in the story, uh, Josiah was 26 years old and and just like we saw with Gideon and the Israelites and judges at that point the Israelites had had started to turn their back on God they were worshiping other idols but they were still very religious people they they, they still anyways, you'll, you'll see that in a second so so Josiah when he's 26 years old he gets his leadership together and he says guys it's time for us to renovate the temple now that's significant because of this. So the reason that he does that is because of this. In the Old Testament, all worship of God like surrounded or was centered around the temple, okay? It was different then. And so he says, all right, let's renovate the temple. And so he gets his leadership together. They they do that. Now, before you think this is like, you know, super awesome and obviously they're turning their backs or they're turning their faces back to God like, It had been recently, or they had recently renovated the temple. I mean, this was kind of a common thing. You renovate the temple every once in a while. So they get everything together. They start renovating the temple. That's where we pick up in chapter 34, verse 14. And listen to what happens. It says, while they were bringing out the money that had been taken into the temple of the law of the Lord, or into the temple of the Lord, Hilkiah, the priest, found the book of the law of the Lord that had been given through Moses. Okay, I'll explain what's happening here in a second. Verse 15, Hilkiah said to this guy named Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. So he gave it to Shaphan. Then Shaphan took the book to the king and reported to him. Your officials are doing everything that has been committed to them. They've paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to the supervisors and workers. Then, okay, so like not the first thing he says, towards the end, I feel like he's just kind of tapping it on at the end, like, oh, and by the way, it says, then Shaphan the secretary informed the king Hilkiah the priest has given me a book so like they're cleaning out the temple and this guy that's cleaning out the temple comes across this book now it wasn't like oh here it is it was like what is this this is an odd looking book now it says he gave it to him and said here's the book of the law of Moses I think the only reason that he knew that was the book of the law of Moses is because what does the front of your bible say It says, Holy Bible. Well, yours doesn't, actually. What's the odds of that? Uh, You know, the front of your book, there you go. It says, Holy Bible. This one probably said, the book of the law of Moses. So he looks at it and he says, oh, cool, book of the law of Moses. Here, I found the book of the law of Moses. Gives it to Shaphan, and Shaphan takes it to the king, King Josiah. And so he tells King Josiah, hey, the work is going as planned. We're renovating the temple. And then at the end, he says, oh, uh, by the way, we found this this odd book. Here, look at it, you know? Now, Now, here's... The irony in this, the irony is these were God's people. They knew that. Like, they knew that they were identified as God's people, yet they didn't even know that God's word existed. When they found this, I mean, they didn't really know what it was. They had no idea what this book was. It had been lost, and it had been collecting dust for so long that they didn't even know it was missing. But something else I think is ironic here is this. Look at where they found it. They found it in the temple, like, they found it where all of their worship was central. I mean, this was like their place of worship, and they found it lost in the temple. It had been lost amidst their religion. It had been buried among the clutter of their busy and essentially false and essentially fake religion. Now, now you go back to uh, this idea of feasting or feeding on God's word, okay? Like, if, if, you, if you don't eat for a while, you, you get hungry, and if you don't eat it all for like three or four days, your stomach is just growling because your stomach muscles are just churning and working. But after about three, four five days, your muscles, they shut down because they're, they, they know they're not getting any food, so they're working for no reason. And when they shut down, your hunger pains, not fully, but pretty much subside for a period. In fact, you could go about 40 days before your hunger pains come back. By that time, though, your body's already in bad shape. And so I'm seeing this, I'm hearing this, and I'm thinking, okay, so they've gone without God's word for a period of time, so long, in fact, that the hunger pains, the muscles in their stomach and their spirit, they've shut down. And so they no longer feel these hunger pains for God's word, and that's why they didn't even know God's word was missing, because they weren't hungry for it. But then as I thought a little bit more and was... And was kind of studying a little bit more and, and thinking about some stuff. I thought, I thought back to week two of our epidemic series when we were looking at the camels and the livestock, and doing a little, you know, yeah, the trumpets and everything. Well, I was looking around online for some, just to learn more about camels. Uh, and I came across this video, and it was, these, it was these guys in the desert in Egypt with their camels traveling, and, and it showed how when these camels get hungry, they get mad when they get hungry, So to keep them from getting mad, even though they didn't have food, they would feed them cardboard. Now the cardboard had no nutrition at all, but when he fed them the cardboard, it made their hunger pains go away. So even though they weren't getting nutrition, it it satisfied their stomach, and I started to think, that's really what the picture is here. They were filling their stomachs With cardboard, and that's why they didn't realize they were starving for God's word. Their stomachs were full of other things, even though those other things were of no nutrition. They had been worshiping these other idols, they had been filling their time, their mind, their hearts with these other things, and so they didn't even recognize that they were hungry for something of value being God's word. And so you go on a little further, and it says, at the end of verse 18, it says, And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. And I feel like this is one of those Jumanji moments. You remember the movie Jumanji, Robin Williams? They find that game and they're like, hmm, this is interesting. They open it up, and the second they roll that dice, I mean, it just (laughs) messes their world up. I mean, things all start happening from everywhere. Like, I feel like this is one of those moments because they have no idea what they're about to get into when they open this book. And so they open the book, and it says in verse 19, it says, actually back up to verse 16. No, go to 19. When the king heard the words of the law, so Shaphan he starts to read verse nineteen. When the king heard the word, heard the words of the law, he tore his robes. When the king Shaphan begins to read, okay, and, and whatever it was the king Josiah heard, it caused him to tear his robes. Now let me just stop here for a second. Culturally, I guess when they got convicted, like they would just—I don't know if it's like an Incredible Hulk type moment or what—but they're just like you know ah you know maybe it's like tearing out your you know pulling out your hair. Maybe that's kind of the same thing we would say today. But they would, you know, just grab the robes and I guess just tear them. Like culturally, that was okay then. Um, but like now, if you feel convicted, I don't start ripping your clothes off. Um, I don't know why my mind went there when I was studying, but I was thinking that would be a really interesting conversation with Dr. Jeff afterwards, um, and it probably wouldn't go well. But so it says, when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to. Hilkiah and a bunch of other dudes and then verse 21 it says, he gave these orders and here's the orders, go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the remnant in Israel and Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. As soon as Josiah heard just a little bit of it read, he stops and he, and he hungered more. If you're writing things down, write this down. As soon as he heard some of the word, he hungered for more of it. He hungered for more. Now I'm, I think I'm 116th Norwegian. Is that about right? And I think most of my heritage is European. There's maybe something else mixed in there. I don't know. Okay, maybe. Uh, but my stomach is straight up Mexican. I love Mexican food. And, and so, like, here's the thing. Like, I, you go to a Mexican restaurant, what do they do? They, the first thing they do, they bring you a basket of chips and some salsa. It is, it is humanly impossible for me. And I've even gone in, like, knowing, because this is a struggle of mine. Like, I've, I've gone in knowing, like, I, I, can't, I can't do this. Or I, I can only eat a couple. But, like, what happens is I eat one. And it's impossible for me to not eat the rest of the basket from that point forward and then ask for another basket. You know what I'm talking about. Um, I was in, when I was still in Lubbock, uh, this guy had come in to, uh, we, we had a meeting scheduled, lunch meeting scheduled to talk about some future mission opportunities. And he was wanting us to partner with his missions agency. So we went out to lunch. We went to my favorite restaurant in Lubbock called Durango's. And uh, Durango's is awesome because of the chips and the salsa. And, uh, and here's what they do at Durango's. They bring out one basket full of chips and then one thing of salsa. And, that, you know, one thing of salsa, that's normal. A lot of people do that. So what you do, you, you know, you take your chip, you dip it in the salsa, you eat. Okay, so here's what this guy does. First time I've met him. Gets the basket and the salsa put on our table. He takes a chip and he takes the salsa like this and he dips it and he just, as we're talking, he just starts eating like this. <laughs> I was like, WTW, like, what, what, what's going on? Like, what the what, you know? And uh, um, you just don't do that. Like, you, you know, if there's only one, you don't, you don't do that. So, but anyways, needless to say, we didn't do any partnering after that because I wasn't very happy, but. Um, like, as soon as Josiah heard some of it, he hungered for more. Once you get a taste, it's impossible not to want more. It's impossible not to want more. You remember this quote from A.W. Tozer? Worship is why we were born, and it's why we were born again. We were created for this. And when we encounter God's word, it's like one of those romantic movie walk to remember type moments where it's like they, they see each other, and there's that double take. You know, you see it, want more, you go back. And then, like, all the lights dim. It doesn't matter if it's inside or out in the field, whatever it is, middle of the day. Like, the lights dim, cue the romantic music, and it kind of comes up. And then this, this this disco ball just kind of appears from out of nowhere. And then the camera starts to spin, and you're in this moment, you know, like Like this. And you just, you just it's, it's like they want more. They gotta taste, they gotta have more of what it is. And that's exactly what it's like when we encounter God. We were created for a relationship with God. And the moment, the moment that we truly encounter him through his word, we hear his voice, it awakens. You know, it's like we've gone without food for a period of time and, and that food gets to our stomach and those muscles start working again and it awakens that innate desire that we were created to have for him and his word. And that hunger comes back, that hunger for more. So he heard from the word, he hungered for more. Then you go on, uh, you, you skip over to verse 26. Chapter 34, verse 26, he says, Go inquire of this person, this prophet, uh, to get more information about God's word, because he hungered for more. And then they get to this person in verse 26, this is what this person says. They say, tell the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says concerning the words you have heard. Verse 27, because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before God when you heard what he spoke against this place and its people and because you humbled yourself before me and tore your robes and wept in my presence, I have heard you, declares the Lord. When Josiah heard and read God's word, he humbled himself. And when we encounter God's word, it humbles us. And it's a weird thing how it happens. Like the closer we draw to God, it's almost as if, or it feels like we're getting further and further away. Let me explain that. You remember studying James 1 last semester? James 1, verses 22 through 27-ish. You get to James 1, uh, And in James 1, it says, Anyone who listens to the word but does not do it, it says, is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror. And then after looking at himself, he goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. When we are apart from God's word, we develop this false sense of who we really are. We start to think like we're, we're bigger, we're better, we're cooler, we're hotter, we're sexier, we're holier than we really are. But the, but the closer that you draw to God, the more you realize, the more, that you, the more you realize you're a whole lot smaller, a whole lot littler, a whole lot less cool, um, and a whole lot more sinful you thought in comparison to how huge and how, how big and how righteous and how perfect and how pure and how holy and how awesome our God is. Romans 12:3 says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. So Josiah heard some of it, he hungered for more, and as he heard God's word, he humbled himself. And then you get to chapter 34, verse 29. So he hears hears what this person had said more about God's word, and then verse 29 says this, Then the king, King Josiah, called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the men of Judah, the people of Jerusalem, the priests and the Levites, all the people from the least to the greatest, He read in their hearing, so in front of all these people, he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the temple of the Lord. The king stood by his pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the the Lord and keep his commands, regulations, and decrees with all his heart and all his soul and to obey the words of the covenant written in this book. Then, verse 32, he had everyone in Jerusalem and Benjamin pledged themselves to it the people of Jerusalem did this in accordance with the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. And Josiah, verse 33, removed all the detestable idols from all the territory belonging to the Israelites. And he had all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God. As long as he lived, they did not fail to follow the Lord, the God of their fathers. So when Josiah read from God's word, he and all the people turned away from their sin and turned toward the call of the Lord, turned toward the call of God. You have not encountered God's word if you are not being convicted to turn away from your sin. This is kind of how I've typically explained it. At some point in our life, like, like we're, we're all backing up. We are all born walking one direction. We'll just say it's, we're born walking this way. And at some point in our life, we're encountered with this. Now we know it's truth, but for us in that moment, we don't know, it's this, this concept, this idea that we're sinners, that the way that we're walking is full of sin, it's not right, it separated us from God. And so there's, there's something else we're going to say over here, and it's Jesus, the one who can fix this relationship between us and God that's caused by the sin, which is going this direction. And so we're faced with this idea. And when we're faced with that idea, we're faced with a choice, like a fork in the road. And we either continue to walk this way, or we turn around, we turn away, and we walk towards Christ. And so the first part of this is, is like, When you put your faith in Christ, it is impossible not to turn away from your sin, because if you believe, really believe Jesus is over here, you're not going to continue to walk this way, right? Now, some people think that you can just continue to walk this way, and that's not true faith, so you turn around, you walk that way, but here's the other part that I've never really thought about until this week. Like, it's impossible to turn away from your sin and not turn towards the call of God on your life. To not turn towards what God is calling you to do, hopping on board with His mission, His call. Because here's why. When you turn away, if you really have faith, you're turning towards Christ. It's impossible to turn away from your sin and not turn towards Christ. And so it's, it's impossible to turn away from your sin and not receive the call because if you just, if you just turn like, and you're not turning away, or you're not turning towards the call of God, you're just you're just turning into more sin. Does that make sense? So like you're here walking this way, I just confused myself and y'all too, I'm sorry. So you're, you're facing this way towards Jamie, all right? And she's representing the going the way of sin direction tonight, I'm sorry. It's just, you know, where you are. Uh, and so you're walking this way, but if you aren't turning towards the call of God, you're just turning out here, which is still not following God, which is still not putting your faith in God, which means you're just turning towards, away from this sin, but towards this sin over here. And so when they encountered God's word, when they heard God's word, they all turned away from their sin and they turned towards God's call. If you are not feeling convicted for your sin, then you've not encountered God through his word. There's one more thing. The very next verse, chapter 35, Josiah celebrated the Passover to the Lord in Jerusalem and the Passover lamb was slaughtered on the 14th day of the first month. Let me give you a little background here on the Passover. The Passover was a feast celebrated every year by the Israelites, kind of like Pentecost. We talked about that two weeks ago. And the reason they celebrated it was to remember what God had done a few years earlier in setting the Israelites free from, from, from Egypt. They had been captive in Egypt, been persecuted, being oppressed, they cry out to God, and God comes to set them free. But he doesn't set them free first uh, before sending 10 plagues on, on Egypt because the Pharaoh at the time didn't want them to go free. So God says, all right, I'll just screw up your world and I'll send 10 plagues, it took 10 plagues eventually to convince Pharaoh to set them free. The 10th plague was a plague where God was gonna come around and he was gonna kill the firstborn of every male in the land, human or animal. And God told the Israelites, your way out of this is to go find a perfect, spotless, unblemished lamb and to sacrifice it and take the blood and paint it over the threshold of your door. And so then that night, When the angel of death came across the land to kill every firstborn male, he would pass over the homes where that blood was covering the door. And ultimately, the purpose of this was God was pointing the people to their need for Christ in the future. I mean, because it was the blood of the lamb covering the doors of the people that saved them from the angel of of death, and it is the blood of the lamb that covering our hearts, lamb capital L, covering our hearts that saves us from eternal death. Revelation, I mean, we're talking Exodus here, Old Testament, where this story happens. But you fast forward all the way to the very last book of the Bible, Revelation 12, verse 10 says this, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ for the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. And verse 11 says, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. All of God's word, every part of it, Genesis 1 all the way to the end of Revelation, is pointing to to one person, to one event, and that is the person of Christ and the event of him dying on the cross and resurrecting from the grave for the salvation of our souls. All of God's word points to that. And when Josiah read God's word, not only did he hunger for more, not only did he humble himself, not only did he and all the others turn away from their sin and turn toward God's call, but his attention was turned to Jesus. That's why they had this Passover. So the question tonight is this. We're asking the question, could it be possible that we are starved for God's word? We're starved for a real encounter with God through his word. And, and from looking at 2 Chronicles, there's a, there's a few questions that I think come about by looking at how, how Josiah and them respond. And, and, and I think these questions will help us answer whether or not we're starved. It's kind of this examine yourself kind of moment. I want you to write these questions down and then I, this, like this week or whenever, tonight, I don't care. Like ask these questions. And, and examine your heart, examine your life, examine yourself, and see, see what the answer is. Here, here's the first one, is this. Do you hunger more and more for God's word? Do you hunger more and more for God's word? I mean, if you don't eat for a long time, uh, your stomach muscles, they shut down, remember? But the moment you put food in your stomach, your muscles, they, they kick back up. And so they, they digest that food, but it doesn't take long for the food to be gone and then you get hungry again. And so there's this constant process of, you go to the Word, you get filled, but you're hungry again. You go to the Word, you get filled, but you're hungry again. The scary thing though is this, if you don't hungry for the Word, then it's likely you're starving, because it means you've been separate from a real encounter with God in the Word for a long, long enough time for those muscles to shut down. Do you hunger for God's Word more and more? The second thing is this, are you getting lower and lower? The more we feast on God's Word, the more we recognize how small we are in comparison to how huge he is. And the irony is, is it feels like the closer we draw, the further we get, even though that's not really the case. It feels that way. And it's not only we humble ourselves more before God, we lower ourselves more before God, but if you look in chapter 34, verse 27, this person talking to Josiah says, because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before God, but then goes on and says, and because you humbled yourself before me. So not only does lowering ourselves as a better perspective of who we are the more we're in God's word not only does that happen before God but it also affects the way and our attitude towards other people and the third question is this is your conviction to turn away from sin and turn toward God's call growing stronger I I, I fear that a lot of us either are still walking this way because we don't feel the conviction from our sin but even more so I I fear that some of us have just turned right here. And so like we turn away from this sin only to turn to this sin. And we're yet to turn all the way to Christ and accept the calling that he has on our life. Like this right here is not real faith. If you don't accept God's calling in your life as well as turning away from sin, you even have to question whether or not your faith is legit, whether or not your faith is real. And when we encounter God's word, truly, there's that full turn, 180 degrees. And then the fourth question is this Are your heart and mind becoming more and more focused on Jesus Christ? Everything in God's word points to Him. And if our compass is pointing toward anything else, we're likely starved. Tonight, we. We've, we're kicking off this series four. So over the next four weeks, we're looking at something. Uh, we're looking at four things that our ministry has been praying about since last December. Uh, these four prayers, um, honestly, it's not like we sat down and said, hey, let's think of four prayers. Like they just kind of came, came out of some conversations, came out of uh, uh, you know, what the Lord was leading us to pray for at the time, and they've continued with us. And these four prayers, I really think, are, are four things that are gonna shape our ministry. And tonight, the prayer is simply this, that we would be a ministry, that that I would be, that you would be, that we would be people who are passionate, not passive, but passionate about seeking God's heart through his word. That we would be people who are passionate, not casual, not indifferent, but passionate about seeking God's heart through his word. our last overflow of of the spring i don 't know if you remember this, but I shared a story about my grandfather. Um, my grandfather was, was, a, was a guy who had a huge impact on a lot of people 's lives um, and, and you know when, when people die, he passed away in October of two thousand and seven, and when people die, you know a lot of times they get an obituary in the paper. Uh, my grandfather got that, but he also got a, an article written about him in the paper, and I want to read just a, a short excerpt from that. I, I shared this with you last semester, but I know a lot of you weren't here, so. A couple just quotes from that. It said Cullum, his name was Cullum. Cullum was always interested in selling life insurance. He was a very successful businessman. But he was more interested in the assurance of life. And then it goes on further in the article, and says he was interested in helping people, especially interested in perpetuating his beliefs that were really dear to him. He said to me once just recently that he didn't wanna get to heaven and be accused of not helping people know the Lord. So like my, my, grand, my grandfather impacted a lot of people's life and, and at his funeral, it was, it was a pretty packed house, not completely, but you know, family and friends, but there were tons and tons of businessmen, uh, some of the most successful businessmen in the you know, city, state, probably outside of the state. He was a very influential guy. But I remember my last conversation with my granddad um, and you know how it is, like when you know you're about to have your last conversation with somebody that you that you really, really love? Like, like, what's the last thing that you wanna to say to them? You, you wanna make sure they know you love them. And so I remember, I'm sitting there, I'm, I'm kinda of kneeling there in, in his room. Um, he's sitting in his chair, and I'm holding his hand, and you know, we, we, I think we both knew. And, and so before I got up, I said, Papa, I love you," And he said, I love you." You know, we had that little moment. And, um, and I got up and started to walk out of the room, and as I walked out of the room, yeah, he, it, was, it was his version of a yell. He didn't have a lot of strength at that point. But, but I, I, I heard him say kind of loudly, I dare you. And I, so I turned around. As I was turning the corner, I turned back around and said, what? And he said, I dare you. You have to know my, my granddad. He had a little, you know, creepy looking smirk on his face. <laughs> and I said, I said, what did you say? And he said, I dare you. And I said, you dare me to what? And he just kind of looked at me and giggled. And he said, I dare you. And he never explained what he was daring me to do. And so for, like, the next year after he passed away, like, I I wondered, you know, when I would remember that conversation, I wondered, what the heck was he daring me to do? And eventually, I figured it out. About a year later, I I, I realized that he he was daring me to give everything I have for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of God's word. And I want you to know how I found that out. About a year later, we had gone back to his house to kind of clean a few things out. And after we had gotten everything in the U-Haul, I hadn't really, I hadn't been back in a long time. So uh, I'd driven separately and I, I told my mom and my dad, sorry, uh, I, I, told, I told them, you know, hey, give me, I'll lock up. Let me, let me just kind of hang for a little bit. And so I went back in the house and, uh, and I just kind of started walking around, you know, because, I mean, that's where they were, you know, ever since I was a little kid. And, and in each room, <clears throat> I started to just, you know, have specific memories, that brought out very specific qualities in my granddad. I mean, I went to his office and it just reminded me, man, this fool was a hard worker. But his work was always centered around Christ. And then I went to the kitchen and I remembered, man, some of the last couple weeks that I had before my grandmother had passed away. We'd sit in there, we'd play dominoes, and we were competitive. And my grandmother was always trying to cheat, and my granddad would let her, and I wouldn't let her, and we'd get in these arguments. And um, but my granddad had such an incredible sense of humor. Um, and then I went into the kitchen. I remember he'd always sit in his his chair at the head of or the dining room. Sorry, he'd sit in his chair at the head of the table, and it wasn't like this is my chair. Back off, but it was like his rightful place. Um, he was the patriarch of our family. He was the spiritual leader of our family. And then I remember going into uh, going into the his bedroom, and uh, and I remember you know the the last few months. Really, the last couple of years of my grandmother's life, she was not in very good health, and she was sometimes not the most pleasant to be around. She would get a little get a little cranky sometimes, uh, but my granddad like endlessly and constantly was at her side until she died. Like even when she wasn't nice to him, I mean like the ultimate picture of of a servant's love. Um, and then I went to the living room, and and I remember in the living room thinking like about when I was you know just a tiny little dude running around on the floor, crawling around on the floor, playing with my Legos, which I still wish I could play with because they're awesome. Um, and, and my granddad, you know, he, he, he wasn't too cool or too big or too great to get on the floor and play with me, like humility, humble love. And about that time, my mom walked in, and we, we just kind of sat there. It was, it, was her, it was her dad, and we just kind of started to talk and share some stuff. And in the middle of this conversation, like, she looks at me, and she goes, oh, my gosh. It's one of those, you know, older person OMG moments. And uh, <laughs> she, uh, she, goes, she goes, oh, my gosh. Have you ever been in, in Papa's closet? And I'm like, no. Uh, and so she goes, you have to come see this. And so we walk back into his closet and open the door. And when we open the door, I see three cardboard boxes. And she says, open one of those. And so I go down, and I open one. And when I open it... I just see all these notebooks, and I, I brought a few of them. I want you to see what these look like. I saw notebooks and notebooks, and this is only a few of them. I saw notebooks upon notebooks upon notebooks like this of my granddad's notes from studying God's word like intensively, like passionately. I mean, just, just so you can see, like, like this one right here. Daniel, Hosea, Amos, Jonah, Micah, Habakkuk, Hag- nobody looks at those, those books, but look at this notebook. <laughs> and it's just full of his notes. It's full of, of like his in-depth study of God's word. And like that was the moment when I realized like he was daring me to give everything I have for the sake of the gospel. My granddad was so so, so passionate about pursuing God's heart through his word. And my prayer for myself since then and my prayer for us as a ministry is that we too would be passionate about pursuing God's heart through his word. That that's what would define us as a ministry, that we would be passionate about pursuing God's heart through his word.